Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. Hello, my name is Tony Naylor and I'm your host this week of the latest BBC Good Food Podcast with the one, the only Tom Kerridge. Say hello, Tom. Hello, how are you? I'm well, nice to meet you in the flesh finally. Yeah. And so in this episode, uh, Tom and I are going to be diving, uh, kombucha in one hand, corona in the other, into trends in food and drink, uh, the exciting new finds that seem to have an irresistible energy to them, the overhyped failures, and occasionally the plain bizarre ideas, which uh, even if you're not on TikTok 12 hours a day, you can't fail to notice, filtering into how we eat and drink. So uh, to help us in this quest into cool, we'll be joined by our special guest, Jules Pearson. Uh, Jules is the creative mind behind the, what you eat and drink drink at such hip hotel brands as the Hoxton and the Mondrian, uh, a woman with her finger firmly on the pulse of food fashion. In a moment, we'll come to precisely how Jules keeps abreast of all the fresh things that are happening in the world of food. But first, Tom, let's lay cards on the table here. Just how trendy are you in your personal life? Are you across all the latest cloud bread trends and pancake cereals online? I, I have to be honest, no. Like, I, I I keep an eye on it and I watch what's going on, but I don't necessarily completely engage. I don't know whether it's because, yeah, I don't know whether I get to an age. You know, like, it's like wanting to know the new music or the latest trends in clothing or the latest, but when you get to nearly 50, you start going, to, uh, I like to know it all, but do I necessarily want to partake? So I, I kind of try to get... Uh, I, I like to know what's going on. I like to know what's going on in the world of food. I like to know what's going on in the world of bars, restaurants, everything that's happening. But does it affect the way that I work or cook or do anything at home? I don't think it does. B, 
bits and bobs may creep in every now and then, you know, like an understanding of Korean cookery or Japanese cookery. I know we'll we'll talk about it in a bit, but the, the way that, that, that there's a huge amount of those, those kind of like Asian influences that are coming into the way that many restaurants cook now doesn't necessarily sit correctly where with, the, with what I personally do. But I might engage in it a bit more at home rather than charge people money for it. So you're keeping an eye on things, dismissing them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in terms of the way that you design dishes, as a small example of what we're talking about here, has that changed in terms of, you know, you'll think more about whether you can make them pop on Instagram as everybody wishes to do and, you know, how you style them? Or is your attitude that actually, you know, my work is more in a classic vein of cookery and that I, I can't be drawn into this ultimately. Yeah, no, uh, listen, the way that I cook is 100% built on classic French foundations of cookery of stocks and sauces and reductions and butter and cream and uh, and it's quite um, homely and solid and um, almost peasant-like in that European style uh, of underlying flavors that we try to drive but when when i start looking at um what's happening around with everything else which is where social media is such an incredible tool and fashion trends fads the social media age is so so important for the food industry because it's you know when i first started cooking you wouldn't know anything about restaurants until you read maybe a, co- a copy of a monthly magazine or weekly maybe in cater magazine or, or there was a cookbook that came out now with with the internet young chefs are looking at you know they can be anywhere around the world you, you know anybody can be looking at food across you know across nations and, and it's so exciting and it feels very vibrant and alive um i just feel that where i am i may be 15 years too late into it it doesn't influence my style of cooking i don't change it but i love i love watching it and seeing it and seeing the way that it develops it's so exciting it's so important it just means that everything is when i was a young chef and you were looking at it it's everything that i wanted it to be it just took longer for me to absorb the information now it's all there it's instant it's accessible it's attractive it's alive it's you know it's almost electric in the way that those fashions and trends can spread very very quickly well what you can do now is sit back and listen to jules filter all her professional knowledge <laughs> into your brain to save you doing all this research over the next few years so perfect uh, jules <laughs> jules is vice president of food and beverage creative development at ennismore uh, a time which may baffle quite a few people listening to this. So, Jules, just explain, if you would, kind of what your role is in broad terms. Um, so I work at a company called Ennismore and I oversee all of the creative within the F&B development team. So um, that is basically programming all the F&B spaces across all of the new hotels. So 160 in the pipeline, some of them with nine restaurants and bars. Uh, so I think 355 restaurants, uh, bars and nightlife venues upcoming. Um, that starts with a visit to the site, the new site, or if it's a hotel that we need to re concept and we'll go out see the site meet lots of people from all different industries if I don't speak the language or it's somewhere really far away I'll work with a trend researcher on the ground Um, they'll pull together a bit of a report for me who I should be meeting the cultural nuances in the city um, everything that's happened in terms of politics wellness Um, to give me kind of a brief overview. I then will um, come away from the city and hopefully have a bit more of an in-depth knowledge once I've met as many people as possible. And then I program the F&B spaces. So that might be taking a restaurant from our brand portfolio and putting it into a new site 
or if we don't have anything suitable or the market demands an international name or a local talent talent partnership, I'll then work with chefs, restaurateurs, mixologists and we'll co-create a concept together. Um, and that's it in a nutshell, really. So, you know, programming the spaces across these new properties to ensure that they're relevant to the market and have longevity. So... Obviously, you're seeking to do something which is sensitive to the location and the cultural nuances of Mm. that location. Uh, I suppose the more meta element of your job is simply staying abreast of trends that are happening because, you know, presumably a lot of this involves you suggesting things, be that dishes, be that styles, you know, on every level from interior down to, you know, tableware. So... Where, where, you know, where do you get your ideas from? Are you literally on your phone 24 hours a day, kind of bookmarking things, sending people you work with links? Yes and no. Um, I would agree that social media has made information so accessible and um, everything moves so, so fast. Um, but there's nothing, you can't be seeing something in real life and, and feeling it and tasting it. You know, you can look at these incredible trends on social media or dishes and, you know, we spoke about whipped coffee before and yeah, they're great, but but until you taste them, does it taste good? Does it, you know, does it actually work in a real environment? So I would say, of course, I look at social media, I listen to podcasts, you know, we have memberships to Future Laboratory and all those trend forecasting agencies. Um, but it's really getting out, meeting, chatting and seeing people that I think is the most important. Because until you do that, you don't get a real feeling for a city. Tom, do you tell younger employees in your businesses that that is still the best way to get across things. I mean, I talk to younger chefs and they are as obsessed about things that are happening in Copenhagen or New York or wherever as they are in what's happening two streets away. Yeah. I mean, have you kind of got to get them out of that mindset a little bit or is that, you know? No, I think that's what creates, it, it, that's what makes this industry incredibly exciting. The, the, the fact that it, it used to be, you know, when I was 18 years old and if you were going to go and travel and cook somewhere, you would leave the UK and you would go to France and that was it. And now yeah. it's like, now it's like, it's world, it's global and it's really vibrant. It's really exciting. And there's lots of young chefs that are cooking incredible food in this country that have been so influenced by world travel. And, you know, it is the one of the most amazing and brilliant and beautiful things about the hospitality industry that if you're in it it is global and i'm very lucky i've been it for for over 30 years and i've traveled and seen so many places so many different cities and countries over the world all because of food all because i've been invited to cook there to go and see there and and when you go there you 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 meet people behind the scenes you get taken to the best bars the coolest restaurants but by coolest i don't mean the one that's the most expensive i mean the ones where chefs like to go and eat late at night at two o'clock in the morning or street food or and and it's the most important thing that when you do travel you get out there and you 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 know every new country i go to when i go there from a from a chef's point of view is i'll dump my bags into the hotel room and i'll go and i'll go for a walk and i'll go and walk and i'll try i'll follow my nose and i'll just go and wander around the city and then go back for for an hour hour and a half then go back and go okay go, find me bearings and then you talk to the not just the head chef in the in the restaurant talk to the young chefs where are they where are they spending the 
their smaller wages. What are they eating? What are they doing? What are they excited about? And it's it's so important. And that's why I think it's great that um, it, it's such a vibrant uh, and eclectic world of food that we've got in the UK now because it is influenced by so many different spaces and people. It's not just the same sort of style that I was cooking or cooking. There's so many different variants now and it makes it such an exciting place. The world of food is now global. It's not just this is how the French cook, the Italians, the, the Japanese, this is how the food you get in the States. It's, and those influences can influence dishes, individual dishes across board, and it makes it so exciting. You mentioned street food there, and certainly for a period, Jules, everybody I spoke to was going to LA to kind of eat Mexican-influenced street food. And I suppose if you have rewound maybe five years, ten years before that, everybody was going to New York, and that kind of, I think, fueled a wave of casualization here. Uh, that's still ongoing in many ways. I mean, are, are we still kind of 12 months behind the US in our food trends or have things changed and our influences coming in from other places now? Controversially, I would say, no, we're leading the way uh, when it comes to the US. I think I lived there in 2018 and I was surprised by the amount of people that firstly didn't have a passport, so I'd never left America. Secondly, like the amount of restaurateurs, and still now when I talk about these global partnerships I do, I bring restaurateurs over from America. They've never been to London. So many journalists, food travel journalists in America had never been to London either. And unfortunately, they have a view that like London food is bad and the UK food is bad. And then, you know, I big travel editors have come over and I give them itineraries and meet them while they're here from connections I made in my time in New York and the, the, my, their minds are blown by how good the food are here. So so I would definitely say that, um, no, I think that we, we lead the way and I think that's because, as I said, not you know, under half of the American population has a passport. But now people in Europe and, and all around are traveling more than ever. So so we're going to the root of, of, of the inspiration. You know, one of the other things I was so interested by and, and blew my mind was the amount of restaurateurs in America that have Mediterranean restaurants and they've never been to the Mediterranean. It's all online Googling. So I think that was a big eye opener for me. Um, so I would say, yeah, I think that America was leading the way for a long time, but I think now everyone's caught up. Uh, Korea has been something that's obsessed people in this country for the last few years. You know, got your young fried chicken, kimchi. Um, have you any idea where that came from? I mean, I'm guessing that's not as travel related, or maybe it is in your experience, uh, than some of the trends. I think there's a number of different reasons. I think Korea, South Korea, Korea is still relatively unknown amongst many, many people. And I think, you know, a trend starts when an innovator um, decides to do something and then the early adopters jump on it. And I might class myself as an early adopter. So trying something first or trying something I have never had before appeals to me. So I think that's one of the big reasons is still a lot of people haven't been there. I think the tourism industry in South Korea is still developing. So we opened a hotel there last year in COVID challenge. Two-week uh, two isolation in a, in a hotel room for any of the people that went out there. I, I decided to pass on that one. Um, but we are also looking at another site with six restaurants and bars out there. So hopefully we'll get to go out there this summer. And, and it's been on the top of my list for so long um, and then you can't ignore things like Korean cinema Squid Games Parasite I mean huge cultural moments um, especially in lockdowns I think that's piqued people's interest in Korea too and then I think the fact that the Korean restaurant market isn't saturated so there's still a lot of 
um, opportunity and gaps in the market for Korean restaurants compared to, say, Italian restaurants, which are on every street. I think I'd also add to that as well, though, that the, the style of food from when it comes from, there was a huge trend for barbecue cookery and Korean barbecue. So it was the next thing. So we've just moved from American-style slow-cooked briskets into what else can we do on barbecues? And all of a sudden, I think it was like a, this perfect storm. It strikes me it, it was those three things, yeah. wasn't they? Gochujang. Yeah. Fits in with the hot sauce thing. Fried chicken. Everybody loves fried chicken. And as the barbecue is moving on, so is the yeah. kind of like all that dude food stuff was moving yeah. into a different area. So, Tom, we talked about gochujang. Uh, so give us a simple recipe then for people who haven't uh, used it before. You know, how how should they get into it? So, it, I mean, it's a great marinade. It's a brilliant paste. And it's easy to get in supermarkets. And it works really well with pork. It works really well with chicken. It works really well with beef on a barbecue. Just slow brushed, marinated, and then you kind of make it into a paste and just keep brushing it on to whatever piece of meat that you're cooking in the oven slowly and those flavours it's kind of like it's a fermented chilli paste basically and it's it, everybody think it looks really bright and vibrant and red and it looks like it's going to be so punchy and fiery and it's it's nowhere near as hot as you think it's going to be and it's a wonderful ingredient to use so on on with pork this episode is brought to you by Twizzlers long day late night feeling a little bored Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Simple, give us a simple kind of uh, insight into so a way to use that. So I would use, I would use it on pork belly, actually, and I would do strips of pork belly, and quite often people will cook pork belly really low and slow so that it kind of falls apart but actually pork belly textually for particularly for something like a korean barbecue it works really nicely when it's still got a little bit of bite to it so i would do slices of it brushed and grilled served very very simply like that with so a really i would nice cook in it give us give, the, give grill, us the literally details under the grill, uh, right. literally under the grill or stick it onto the barbecue if you want to marinate it for eight hours and then and, and then just simply grill it right so, very trendy ingredient used on, you might argue, a slightly old-fashioned piece of meat. Um, so, yeah, and kimchi, obviously, fermenting, pickling, that was huge at the same time, wasn't it? Massive, so. yeah. And, and, and pickling is something that we've uh, that sits really naturally with us in this country as chefs and the way that we cook is because, you know, we are a country that preserves. You know, we're very good at smoking and pickling. And uh, and then you add to that kind of fermentation and all of a sudden, and, and because also that's something that was being used quite a lot in Scandinavian-style cookery, all of it ties in really, really nicely. That idea of preserving stuff as well, it, for it, it, trying to create seasons that stretch so you know you're pickling i don't know asparagus now in spring that you might be able to use in winter you know so it's a, the ability to be able to to stretch seasons and move ingredients and make them last all year but just in a different in a different form or a different context and the, the way that they use in terms of spicing and seasoning as opposed to just being a correct fresh vegetable so all of those things make it very very exciting partic particularly for this country where you know we're very good at you know we're, we're a northern european country that is cold most of the time <laughs> you know we wear jumpers for nine months of the year so you know we, we are you know we've got root vegetables that need to be used that you know that we utilize really nicely and there's also been a, a massive up 
upsurge in the use of root vegetables in the way that, you know, vegetable being seen as quite a big star, particularly in the last year, in terms of veganism and vegetarianism. So then as chefs, how do we make that more exciting? And those influences then start coming from overseas. What is everybody else doing to create something exciting and slightly different and a twist and a change of an ingredient that we all swede that we've had forever or turnips or how do we how do we make them more exciting so yeah influences from all over and and that's um, um from korean point of view that that food is just rocketed in terms of popularity we'll come to the some of the things we love and hate that have emerged <laughs> through this process in a while but i mean the one i would say you know the largest change in british food over the last 10 to 15 years has been that casualization you know formality is not cool and hasn't been cool for a few years now. Uh, you know, Tom's got his pubs, uh, everybody's eating small plates, you know, street food's massive, market halls are massive, and, you know, I, you might have thought COVID would kill them off, actually. They seem to be coming back now. Do you both, you know, Jules first, I mean, do you both think that's going to continue or will there be a point where suddenly everybody was actually... I miss three courses mm. and I miss, you know, some table side service and I miss kind of, I don't know, uh, the pomp and ceremony of mm. uh, going out to a pretty formal restaurant. Um, I think post-COVID, there's definitely an element of a slightly uh, bougier restaurant coming back, should we say, and Tableside Theatre is definitely coming back a little bit because it's shareable. Um, so, you know, it's something that people want to share on social media. And I think, you know, not to, to take it too far, but entertainment is is a big category that people are saying is going to um, expand. So oh, dear. It, it's not just, you know, <laughs> and I went to a DC uh, comic, comic restaurant on at the weekend and it was this immersive 20 um 20 seat table with i mean floating plates and smoke and all kinds of craziness um it was interesting to see and then it was full and chatting to people in there as to why whether that it was a really eclectic mix of people so i think that um, people do want more of an experience because they want escapism. I mean, you look at what's going on in the news. People want to go out and forget about the doom and gloom of the world. I think there's definitely more of a trend, and we're seeing it a lot in London with Dubai restaurants coming into the market for the first time ever. And, you know, this this over-the-top um, experimental entertainment. Um, so I think that, that cas the casual restaurant trend will continue because people are eating out more than ever and it's, you know, quick, fast. But I think that there's definitely going to be more and more experimental restaurants that offer the kind of 360 experience with interiors, uh, entertainment, food, drink, service. I mean, you, you see it a lot with a, a lot of the new Italian group of restaurants in London that are all about kind of the immersive experience. Uh, Jules, We've seen a rash of kind of fresh pasta restaurants. I know you're developing a Detroit pizza brand or have one developed. And, you know, we're seeing this, a lot of new pizza brands coming onto the market as well. Mm. That's interesting because obviously pizza and pasta were always considered to be kind of like relatively profitable <laughs> and relatively simple to knock out products. Mm. So there's something which seems like a win-win for both sides, you know, for the businesses it's doable, they can make money selling that product. Uh, for us, it's a slight improvement on what went before, you know. I mean, is it often that things click because of that, you know? It just works for the businesses. Um, I mean, I'd say if, if if you're looking at doing Italian because of the profit, don't do Detroit pizza. <laughs> 
Um, it, it's it's a really hard uh, hard pizza to make. It requires a, a lot of preparation. What's a Detroit pizza? Explain <laughs> it. Explain it. So yeah. a Detroit is is like a squared pizza, um, but it's made in a square tin. I mean, you have to use specific tin to make the pizza in and the cheese goes on before the tomato so you put the cheese on the base first and the tomato on top and because it's baked the cheese runs down the side and so you get this amazing crispy edge and it's like really thick pizza and it's like cake and when I lived in America in 2018 I fell in love with this pizza and couldn't believe that there wasn't any in in London Um, and the reason that I actually developed it was A because of that because actually if you go around Europe, you don't really find it. Um, and B, because it's going into a, a, one of our properties in Barcelona and it competes with tapas, right? Pizza, it, it's relatively cheap. It's fast. Um, we're in an area that's surrounded by lots of tech offices. So I feel like it fits quite nice there. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's why we developed it. But it, it's it's hard. It's, it's 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 definitely a harder pizza to make than, than your normal pizza. Um but yeah, I mean, the, the thought taking was... taking the difficulties of Detroit pizza out of that <laughs> conversation, you know, I mean, once you've nailed those as a process, be it fresh pasta or pizza, obviously the Detroit one takes a little longer to nail. That strikes me as something that you can do relatively easily. Mm. And like I say, you know, the populist products, it's not something where you're frightening the audience with something they don't know. It is a kind of step up from what they might have had previously. So, you know, it seems, as I say, a win-win for everybody concerned, really. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it doesn't scare people off like, you know, if you were doing something that was really, really niche um, because they understand it and they understand what pizza is. So it's not an educational piece. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's not just the process. Each one takes about 25 minutes to cook, which is very different to a normal pizza, which you can knock out in 30 seconds, 60 seconds. Um, But yeah, I think it's been great and it's been perceived. (laughs) I like that dismissal. Of Neapolitan pizza, there. There'll be some. There'll be some people around this country listening to that now who've spent years perfecting those sixty-second pizzas. I should say that um, I tried to nail a normal pizza in lockdown and nearly got a divorce instead. Well, yeah. Well, I think we all went through that process during lockdown. Um, Tom, another to me seemingly authentic trend uh, is is. Every high-end chef in Britain's sudden, oh, I'll say sudden, ongoing fascination with Japanese food. You know, everything from koji to chowanmushi, which seems to suddenly be everywhere. Yeah. You should explain, actually, to people what chowanmushi is. Kind of like a, it's a steamed egg custard, yeah. um, savoury, um, that's flavoured with I don't, miso quite often. or but Yeah, so it's a, it's a steamed-based custard that then quite often has a kind of like a layer of stock on the top or uh, some vegetables or... So, so it, it's, um, yeah, it's something that's... Well, something that's been... Like the French-style cookery have been doing it for ages in kind of like royales, like little baked savoury egg custards um, that are flavoured with vegetables. But the, the Japanese one is much lighter. Um, and I think the trend from top-end um, British chefs looking at Japanese food isn't just to do with the flavours. You know, it, you know that kind of savoury, umami flavour that we always look for, the thing that gives it that extra, just a next layer, next level of flavour. Japanese cookery it, it, it is um, it, it has that in abundance. But I think the big thing why Japanese-influenced um, food is beginning to take uh, uh, or has taken a massive stronghold is its um, 
respective ingredients the style the precision so it becomes not it's not just about ingredient if you're cooking it you know michelin star level pretty much every chef at that level is about precision they're about they're not chaotic chefs they're chefs that work in busy environments and fast spaces but to be able to cook to that level it's about structure environment um respect for ingredient and it's some of the best japanese food you'll have is is very very simple it's the ultimate ingredient being cut you know precisely seasoned correctly and all of these kind of it's about technique so as as much of of a flavor influence as japanese food has so much more of it i think it runs much deeper in terms of mentality and technique that chefs are trying to perfect is there a slight herd like mentality among chefs though i mean i remember a period where tokyo suddenly was being talked about a lot i think there was a rash of places got stars and did you observe or were you talking to people who were suddenly, right, we need to go to Tokyo, find out what's happening there? Or has it been something more organic and slower? No, I, I, I listen, I do think that um, it, it, it does spread like wildfire when people go, yeah, this is great, this is wonderful food. And, and, and then when, you, when, it, when there's an awakening and it is very, very good, there's no reason, there's nothing wrong with people suddenly going, yeah, this is really good. Why, why, why shouldn't people be influenced by great cookery or respect of food? And, and, and the chef community, it, it is a small industry. I mean, it's a massive industry. It employs over 3 million people. But actually, you know, when it comes to top end, everybody kind of knows each other. Everyone, everyone eats out. Everyone enjoys, you know, and, and your kitchen brigade, you may have 15 chefs in your kitchen and somebody else has 15 in theirs. And then all of a sudden, but all of these they all know each other they all talk to each other they all so all of these influences they spread very very quickly so and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it there's nothing wrong with people improving what they do even if it is feels from the outside jumping on a bandwagon but it's not it's about improvement of technique improvement of respective ingredients and flavors which is a good thing for everybody consumer and chefs it's time for Where Do You Stand On? Where Do You Stand On? Right then, so um, we're going to do our Where Do You Stand On section now. So this, you know, a quick fire round really just to establish which were the duds and which are the keepers of trends of recent years. So uh, Tom first, small plates. Yeah, keepers, I like it. I like it. it. It's eclectic, keep it. I love it. It allows you to order lots of different things from a menu and try lots of different things, and I I, that, I love that. Yeah. Post-COVID, it's good for sharing as well. We can all <laughs> yeah. get into having, helping ourselves, although everyone else's food. Now, here's an opinion splitter. Jules, you go first on this one. Natural wine. Love it. I think, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it, I drink it, and I'm disappointed if it's not on a menu. And not clinically proven, but I genuinely think that it gives you less of a hangover. <laughs> It's on our menus. I'm a non-drinker, so I've got to be honest, I, I, I'm not bothered. If someone wants to drink, I'm very happy for people to drink whatever they like. For the record, I've definitely had a hangover after drinking natural wine. <laughs> uh, Less of a hangover. <laughs> Less of a hangover. <laughs> uh, Tom, avocado toast. Uh... Yeah, it's a keeper. I like a bit of avocado. You know, I'm 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 up for keeping it. It's got to have lots of chili on it though, or just cover it in Tabasco or crispy chili. Who you knows? Yeah, just cover it in something else. I do, a big fan Chris, of avocado. Crispy chili all the answer yeah, to all the Crispy chili or on avocado toast definitely keeps. Jules, is avocado toast still in your venues or? Uh... It's the one of the biggest uh, selling dishes in our venues, and definitely keep it. But I think 
because of the sustainability issues that are coming up, we're going to try and do a pea mash on toast and see how that um, divides opinion. Uh, so this may make me seem really uncool, you know, Tony's come down from the north still <laughs> thinking pulled pork is a thing. But, you know, it's still out there. So, you know, Tom, pulled pork, has that gone past the point of being trendy and now it's just established? Uh, yeah, no, I think pulled pork is really established. I don't think pulled pork is anything trendy anymore. I think everyone's just like, yeah, well, like I remember like when p- p- everyone started cooking with pork belly and everyone's like, what, pork belly? What's this? It's like, no, pulled pork is now the same. It's it's fully established. It's not trendy at all. It just exists. So by that token, Jules will probably now tell us it's not on the menus in any yeah. of the venues because it's too passe. Yeah. It's passe, exactly. No, it's just genuinely not on any of our menus. <laughs> <laughs> there there not- we go. <laughs> not even trendy well here's, here's, here's another one that's probably its moment may have passed craft gin so is it in your venue still is it still a big thing yeah gin is big um, it's nowhere near as big it was a couple of years ago are you likewise over gin jewels I um I mean I still like a gin and tonic every now and then but I yeah I think it's got saturated um the last few years and actually they're saying the new the new spirit that's going to come in is bijou the uh, Chinese spirit which actually outsells lots of Western spirits already because there's such a big market for it there right. but that's the new new one that's going to enter the market soon apparently and I think with these new spirits you see lots of not just just the spirit coming in but you know people innovating when it comes to branding bottles all those bits and bobs so i think yeah watch this space Uh, i've never tried it one that i would say is definitely approaching saturation point if it hasn't already is barata tom and i know why it's on every menu because you can just take it out rip it dress it and send it yeah Uh, although i don't all right it's not trendy but it, I think it's one of those things that's here to stay. I do. I think. I think it's nice. I think people like it. It's a very clean, very simple, very easy go-to starter that I think will be here. It's not trendy at all, but it will be around Barata forever. Now. isn't trendy. I find. I find that hard to believe. Maybe not in London, but in the rest of the country, I would say you could still. You know. It's still a relatively exciting addition to the menu in some Would places. You say? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's interesting to hear that. I think in London it was about five years ago when you found it on every single menu. Yeah. Yes, you're there um, first doing everything. We know. We know. Yeah. But I, was, I would say it's like pulled pork. It's had its day. Yeah. yeah. So one for you, Tom. Flavored salts. Uh, chefs keep talking to me about this being a missed opportunity for the average person, and flavored salts they need to get into using them in their cooking. Me, personally, I think they're pointless. To close, Tom, I'm interested. You know, obviously, we could look back over the years, edible flowers. I mean, you know, we're both old enough that we can remember main courses in stacks. You know, everything (laughs) had to come in a stack. You know, cereal milk, (laughs) foams and gels. We've all seen them come and go. I mean, when do chefs decide this is over? I mean, is there a conference yearly where you all decide, right, we're over that now? When you see, you know, 71-star chefs using a, a partic- cooking in a particular style, that it then loses personality. You know, you've, just, you just end up start cooking to a trend, and that's when it filters further down and further down and further down. And then once the people in that kind of, like, top level start seeing that it on a on a, you know, on a pub, menu somewhere uh, part of a chain that's when it suddenly goes oh my god we need to because it will be seen as the same even though it won't it might be the same style 
but it's not executed the same. So then it's time to change. Then it's time to flip. And you're, you, as chefs, we're always looking for new things. We're always looking for new ideas or new new influences or things that we can, the way that we can present or the way that we can showcase ingredients. But I, there is a point where you can feel that, that it becomes saturated, and that's when that's when it gets dropped. Things get dropped from menus. We're all looking for those timeless keepers. Yeah, really. Yeah, uh, but as we can like say, burrata and avocado. Yeah, it's it's a minefield. Well, thank you for guiding us through it, Jules. Thank you. And Thanks uh, for having best me. Best of luck with the Detroit pizza. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the BBC Good Food podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. For more brilliant cooking advice, don't miss the quick bonus recipe episode. Let's cook together. See you next time. 